Hola mundo. Hello world. Welcome to the spoken sound. My name is Marcelo Sosa. How do we negotiate disorientation and adversity? The arrival of disasters, both natural and human-made. How do we move through the moments in our lives when we are challenged and stretched thin and thrust into situations whose realities we can barely grasp, let alone find within them the mercy of a sense of meaning or purpose or a visible horizon of transcendence? What's the bottom line when the bottom line we depend upon drops out from underneath us and sends us into freefall? I tend to think the bottom line begins with recognition, reconocimiento, of self and freefall, of gravity and truth and the razor-thin threshold between the balances, of other in free fall, of shared disorientation and adversity, but of other rooted as well, enraizado, of arms and attentions outstretched, of the resiliency of nature and the webwork safety net of nature's societal umbrella. I tend to think the bottom line revolves around the letting go of self to the timelessness of self in other, to the experience of self in all. Connection, connectedness, relation, relatedness. Today, I offer a story taken from a book in progress that explores these ideas in the process of my mother's life with Alzheimer's. My imagining of her freefall amid a grappling with my own, and the recognition of the webwork ties that join them. This is an excerpt from a chapter entitled A Tide That Binds. It formulates around an old property with a small orchard that my life partner Shelley and I share and care for in New Mexico. The names of a few people mentioned or involved are changed here to honor their privacy. Note that this is long. We are a busy culture, often without time for the attention it solicits. But therein lies the beauty of the pause button and the luxury of being able to return however many times it takes to hear the whole story or to just turn it off and move along to the next idea. A Tide That Binds Friday, July, New Mexico, Irrigation Day. Shelley and I walked to the water meeting together this morning. 7 a.m. is the customary time here every week through the spring and summer into the early part of fall. The meeting takes place in a small parking area next to the community center. The mayordomo, the overseer of the water, arrives earliest and sits in his truck waiting for his water flock to roll in. Most in pickups, 
a few in smaller cars, one or two on foot. In my experience, depending on the weather and the need for water, the number of bodies in the parking lot will range from four to twenty. Today, there were at least twenty. It has been hot and dry, and the fruit trees and alfalfa fields are thirsty. see my mother in these trees, on these fields, wandering the desert of her psyche, a drought unlike any other she has known, gradually rendering fallow the nutrient-depleted soil of her being. I cannot help but look, and to consider this comparison. I cannot help but have this on my mind. Bueno. The Mayordomo is an older man, born of the generations of Mexican and Spanish blood that permeate this long-held Spanglish-speaking barrio, where half his customers are related, and like him, can probably claim a street within a three-mile radius of their home, named for a family ancestor. He stooped, leaned like a retired clown against his truck with a clipboard in his hands, and glanced round at the ragged half-circle of his audience. It's time, no? Everybody ready? Got some water to give away, but it's going fast. He shrugged and flashed a broad, white-toothed grin. The acequia, the big artery into which water from the river is diverted, and from which all of us in turn divert our rations into the veins of private ditches to flood fields, gardens, and orchards, is running low. Shelley and I were allocated four hours where we usually get six or more to cover what we need. Four o'clock today to eight, okay? Most times we are told to start at 7.30 right after the meeting, along with one of the neighbors, Emilio or Crispin. But the water is too low for simultaneous irrigating. Emilio got first dibs. Crispin did not show up. A mayordomo does his best to steer the waters where they are needed most. We came this particular week for three reasons. To irrigate the quarter-acre orchard in our charge behind the old adobe home here. To harvest the cherries and black raspberries that are ready to be plucked. And to attend a book reading at a local writer's collective by our friend Maya, who lives down mountain from where we live in Colorado, and will be staying with us while in town. We came as well, I must confess, for a moment of escape, a break from my mother's seemingly endless cognitive dissolution. The searing reality that she is with us still, alive and present, but so far away as to sometimes seem a stranger. The reading took place on Wednesday, the evening we arrived. Maya was not alone in the spotlight. A local author, Spencer Trout, read from his new book as well, and his presence captured my attention in a way I could never have anticipated. Me asombró, 
he astonished me, threw me for a loop. His novel sounds great, and I plan to read it and more of his writing, but truth be told, it was not the book in that moment that grabbed me. Spencer introduced himself modestly and read quickly, skimming through the chapters, almost as though he had someplace else to be. I thought at first, this must be his style, aloof, modest, a bit shy, perhaps. I could relate to that, especially the shy part. But there was more. He seemed somehow removed or distracted from the situation, like he did not altogether want to be there. Something in his attitude, in the tension behind his eyes, in the heightened state of his alertness, as though he were ready to catch something that might fall from the sky at any moment, hit so close to home that I did not notice it so much as feel it, like a reflex on the edges of perception. Later, he and Maya sat in a pair of folding chairs to sign books. Behind them, on a sofa, an older woman chatted with a younger man. She was loud, not obnoxious or rude, but loud and uninhibited enough to draw attention. It was clear by the fondness with which she teased the young man that they knew each other. I was told that this was Spencer's wife, Grace, a painter, and I figured, okay, that makes sense. She's animated, creative, and full of life. The kid must be a friend or relative, and it's all in good fun. But her presence held a peculiar edge that I recognized much as I had Spencer's wariness. A sense of reaching into the room, reckless and almost physical in its immediacy, which made me pause to watch and listen, and then to shrug away like a lost idea. And I could not say why. At the end, after Maya had said her goodbyes and thank yous to her gracious hosts, and we had crossed the room to leave with her to find a place to eat, she mentioned Grace's Alzheimer's. Maya, as familiar with the picture as anybody, her own father having lived with it as well, her own writing having explored it at painful depth. Two plus two equals, well, shit, of course. I should have known. Grace's volume, humor, and lack of filter reminded me so much of my mother when she used to try so hard to remain rooted in a moment, to recognize context to the fog of cognitive dislocation, keep a grip on the faces, identities, and conversations around her. My mother is past that now, does not even try anymore, but still I imagine the gradual fading out to be something like hearing where sounds turn fuzzy, distant, and muted, and one begins to speak louder without even realizing because one cannot hear oneself. Only in this case, it might be called consciousness loss, where reason itself, along with comprehension, falls victim to the fuzz and disarticulation. My mother used to say, when she was still aware of this gradual loss of mental function, that she would rather have cancer than lose her mind. Anything else she'd take, just not this.
este Alzheimer's. Dios me libre. I might have known it was wishful to think we could escape the presence of this disease. This profound, unsettling drought of human standing upon the bedrock complacency of modern, civilized life. We are outliving the limitations of our body's design. We drink too much for too long from life's available waters. But here we are, and the thirst is everywhere. A chaos of the collective conscience driving us towards some sort of greater reckoning. Spencer's aloofness, his distraction, weariness, and the sense that he had someplace else he needed to be, suddenly made a lot of sense. As we crossed the room on our way out, I spotted Spencer standing next to Grace, she continuing to tease the young man, Spencer absently addressing a question from a fan, his eyes darting from the fan to Grace and back, negotiating balance. I felt a sudden flush of grief for these two people. I wanted to drop to the ground from the weight of it. I wanted to stop and reach for both of them, tell them I loved them, I felt for them, I ached with them. And there was more. I had been reading a book by Dale Bredesen, a leading researcher in the field of Alzheimer's. This copy was an advance proof scheduled for publication the following month. Shelley had brought it home from the bookstore where she works shortly before we had left for New Mexico. The book had taken me by surprise. My mindset, until then, had conformed itself to the resignation associated with the general assessment of Alzheimer's as hopeless and incurable. All my reading. All my conversations with doctors, caregivers, and victims of the disease had steered me toward a sense of hesitant acceptance of an essentially negative and foregone conclusion. Nowhere had I encountered the notion that not only might we be able to alleviate and to an extent even reverse the symptoms of Alzheimer's, but we may even be able to prevent them from cropping up in the first place. This was the first anything I had encountered on any level that offered tangible hope regarding Alzheimer's. Hope which in a nutshell lies in an interpretation of Alzheimer's as an immune response to chronic, often treatable brain-body contaminants rather than the random attack of a single uncompromising killer pathogen. This was more exciting than the good luck, there's nothing we can do, goodbye, so sorry, we had been confronted with by the status quo. It was a new beacon signal flashing in the mist, indicating help. Help, 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 help. But I did not stop to reach for Spencer and Grace and tell them that I loved them. I did not know how. I did not feel I had the right to the scope of knowledge and experience. Besides, this was not the place and time, and Spencer and Grace were complete strangers to me and me to them. And the book that was exciting me so was not even out yet, and I had not even finished reading it. I did not stop. Instead, 
I watched, mute and confused, and like a helpless child followed Shelley and Maya across the room, around a table and some bookshelves, and out the door. Out to the cool evening air and the tail end of a crimson-purple New Mexico sunset. Out, leaving Spencer and Grace alone and immersed in the thick of a reality they could no more escape than any words of mine could begin to make it go away. Hope. Have I misplaced it? Am I naive to get so excited by the new discoveries? Should I temper that excitement to reflect the sense of cautious skepticism I receive when I approach people with this information? I think of our friend Maya, surely traumatized by her father's experience of Alzheimer's, every bit as my siblings and I are by our mothers, as anybody is who loves and cares and remotely feels for someone else. Her father, who I imagined slowly faded, came undone piece by piece like my mother is now. Her father, from whose experience Maya came to know, live, and write about the complexity of this disease. I think of how, when I mentioned Bredesen's book at the restaurant after the reading, Maya visibly stiffened. My siblings had done the same during a snack stop on a mountain hike the previous week. A cloud, like a battalion of white blood cells, swarmed to her defense, seemed to gather behind her deep blue eyes. I felt the flame of my own excitement, already compromised by my failure to connect with Spencer and Grace in the bookstore, begin to flicker and sputter as though a breeze had pushed through the adobe walls beside our table. Maya asked one question. Is it peer-reviewed? And I could not answer definitively, not because I did not know or recall what the book had said, but because the answer is about as convoluted as the disease itself. It is not conducive to a black-and-white cut-and-dried response. The research had, as Bredesen discusses, been peer-reviewed where the researchers could get it peer-reviewed. The biggest criticism seemed to be that the research lacked the consequence of large-scale clinical trials, but those were out of reach from funding because most investment went only to studies that emphasized specific single-drug solutions that had so far failed at every turn. This research draws outside the lines, explores beyond those single-drug solutions, and opens itself to the evolving parameters of a more functional approach to understanding disease. It involves the seeking of answers by way of an expansion rather than a contraction of the questions being asked. It calls for a diversification of inputs, a multiplicity of hands and minds enjoined rather than the laser-like focus of heroic specialization we have come to associate with modern retail healthcare. I know that Maya would not expect a cut-and-dried answer to her question. I know she is well aware of the complexities involved in research, funding, politics, and the rest. 
because she has been through the ringer with this. And she is tired. Fruitless miracle healing solutions are a dime a dozen in our culture of quick fixes and instant gratification. Her real concern was that multiple reliable sources had reviewed the evidence and were in agreement. That this was not some fly-by-night pseudo-scientific snake oil sale. She is cautious. She has seen what the disease can do and is understandably inclined toward doubt ahead of conscious inquiry. I wished that I could tell her more. But it was all too new and I was simply not prepared. I think of Bredesen's description of the Alzheimer's brain as a roof with several holes through which brought many leaks by many causes, each requiring a different set of tools to mend it. I think of how this applies to so much more than this disease, how it cuts to the quick of human influence itself on the resources upon which life depends, and to the deepening drought that our insatiable demand precipitates across the living spectrum. More and more, the science regarding Alzheimer's shows the complexity of its formulation, the way it infiltrates over decades, invisible and silent from multiple directions, and how we need to learn to mitigate on the level of mosaic, altering the landscape carefully, as opposed to blasting it with shock and awe. I think of our awkward morning yesterday, Thursday, before goodbyes to Maya and resuming our regular New Mexico rhythm. We had all gone to a small town in the hills to visit Spencer Trout at his home and garlic farm. He grows shallots too, and flowers, and words. He grows words in abundance, unable anymore to share the harvest with his wife unable to share the present which has come of their nearly 50 years in this place they built and planted together, from the rugged soil to their adobe brick walls to the vigas and their ceilings. We had entered the house into a den-like room with a sofa, desk, chairs, bookshelves, artwork, and a couple of old farm dogs snuffling for attention. So who's this one? He seems... Syllabus. Grace grinned and pointed at me as we crossed paths, she and her son, who helps during the week on their way to somewhere else. I fumbled for a response, seeing my mother in this woman's eyes, in the determination of her smile and the unsteadiness of her footfalls. I wondered what she meant by syllabus. What word, perhaps, she just could not fish from the pond for what she actually meant to say. Silly, perhaps. Or was it what she meant to say? I answered quietly as she stepped across the threshold. Me? Don't mind me. I'm just here. Maya stood next to Spencer, already in conversation, the two of them watching son and mother slip out the door. Maya said, she's sweet, like my dad was. Spencer sighed, 
an enormous bodily exhalation overflowing with pain, love, generosity, and fatigue. He had been a mayordomo for a time himself, tending to the acequia that fed his farm and family. A man plenty versed in the ebbs and flows, the dry spots and the floods of his domain. Well, he answered, recovering his breath. She's not always sweet. She can sometimes be challenging. Like I did the night before, I wanted to drop. I wanted to hug this tall, lanky man, but I felt so small and ignorant and young, though I am older than Maya, and silly, that I did what I always do. I clammed up. I sat and watched and listened to the grown-ups discuss grown-up things, aching for the day I might be grown-up enough myself to feel legitimate enough to join them. I just stood there, silent and feeling out of place, as usual. I understand now that there is only so much time for me, for those I love, for those I can imagine loving and reaching out to if only I can summon up the courage. I see the common ground is parched and thirsty, and we must work out loud, together, towards a quenching. Let this, then, these words, these thoughtful considerations offered to the injured soil, serve as my initial claim to grown-up conversation my arms outstretched in solidarity and exploration with the many hearts and souls in like cultivation of the senses. Let this be water in the desert of our common grief, from the well of our common mourning, a Friday's irrigation trickling down to moisten hardened roots. Let this be a wavelet in a growing tide that serves to bind and heal, and ever strengthen. Let this be a syllabus for learning to speak out. This is The Spoken Sound. I'm Marcelo Sosa. I'll be back when next I'm back in el siguiente capítulo de este pequeño cuento humano in the next chapter of this little human tale, The Spoken Sound, with some sort of food for thought as the hunger never wanes. I'll try to keep the next one shorter. Hasta entonces, que se cuiden bien.